All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you this day for your goodness and grace to us. Thank you for the truth we heard this morning from Scripture, and we pray you'll open our eyes and hearts to uh, this passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at week 10. This is a, really a continuation of what we were doing last week, where we looked at the first 16 verses of chapter 7. You could say uh, the chapter is revolves uh, marriage-related matters. I call it marriage and divorce, and we're looking at week 10, marriage and divorce continued. First, we need our quiz. Number one, some in Corinth believe that divorce was an option for a believer married to an unbeliever. True, true. Remember, Paul says no, unless there's some biblical grounds. And they're, they're not citing any biblical grounds. Paul says no, because you don't have any biblical grounds unless the desertion occurs. And then, uh, two, Paul forbids widows from marrying again. False. Paul forbids a divorce, all divorce in chapter 7. False. He allows it there for desertion. Four, Paul allows divorce but not remarriage in chapter 7. False. I mean, we didn't. We talked about that a little bit. I said, "There's nothing." I mean, that's a that's a position. If you look at the positions on divorce, when I was first saved, we had no divorce, no remarriage. That's one position. Uh, when I went to went to school, went to seminary, Grace Seminary, that was pretty much the universal position. It was in conservative Christianity: no divorce, no remarriage. There wasn't a lot of divorce, <laughs> you know, in those days, and. Uh, I know uh, Dr. Rice. What's that? I said, oh, you're old. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> Same with us. But uh, at Inner City, I, Dr. Rice, the pastor there, held no divorce, you know, no remarriage position. And uh, then you had a position, not as commonly held, but divorce, but no remarriage. Now, the problem with that position is that there's no, there was no position like that in the ancient world. That is... Jews allowed divorce, but they allowed remarriage. No, there's no such thing in the ancient world. There's no such thing anywhere in the ancient world of the position divorce and no remarriage. That was just unheard of. This is a modern American invention, American Christian invention, divorce but no remarriage. Not smart enough to huh? first time. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, divorce and remarriage for certain reasons, but Paul uh, does not forbid remarriage. Um, five, Paul allows divorce for desertion of the marriage. He said true there in chapter 7, the latter part of chapter 7. So we're looking at chapter 7, marriage and related matters. Last time we looked at behavior within marriage. We were looking at those who, were mar- who are married now or have been married. That is probably widows and widowers. Those who are married and those who uh, have have been previously married. Uh, now we're looking at um, uh, chapter 7, verses 17 through 24 this morning, the guiding principle uh, of Paul in Paul's advice. That is, Paul has been giving some advice uh, in chapter 7, and... Uh, Remember, they were arguing for breaking up marriages 
And, uh, well, let me just read what we have here, and we'll see uh, what I'm talking about here. Uh, Paul's general advice throughout this chapter is to remain as you are. The Corinthians were seeking to change their present status because they believed, at least some of them did, that their coming to Christ required changes with regard to their marital status. But Paul's understanding is that in most, though not all, cases, a Christian can and should maintain the same social situation they were in at the time of their conversion. These social situations, including married, single, or divorce, do not affect one's new relationship with Christ and his church. We do not become more spiritual by changing our social or marital status. Generally, we should learn to be content in the situation we find ourselves and concentrate on keeping God's commandments, which is what ultimately counts in life, as Paul will say in verse 19. So to make his point here about generally remaining as you are in your social status and your life situation, Paul will illustrate this with two other kinds of social situations, circumcision and slavery. So he's going to use circumcision and slavery to illustrate what he wants to bring forth to them and explain to them. Uh, What do do uncircumcision and circumcision, what do slavery and freedom have to do with marriage, divorce, and celibacy? They, they, They illustrate the principle, the divine principle, that no earthly status, such as one's racial heritage, one's social standing is incompatible with one's calling to salvation by God. (coughs) One does not have to change these kinds of statuses. Now, this is not an absolute principle, as we'll see. Uh, There are changes that we do have to make sometimes when we come to Christ. For instance, a new believer must stop being involved with anything that's immoral or illegal of any kind. You know, So when Paul says remain as you are, he's not saying, I'm a pornographer, can I continue? In a, no, you can't do that. I'm a bank robber, can I continue? No, you can't continue to rob banks. And You can't continue in immorality or anything illegal. We're not talking about that when Paul says remain as you are. Let's look at the first statement of the principle in verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them, called them to salvation. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. This verse is tied to what proceeds by the conjunction nevertheless, which itself refers back to the exception in verse 15, desertion of the marriage. The brother or sister is not bound in such cases. Nevertheless, change is not to be the rule. Rather, one is urged to stay in one's social situation at the time of one's conversion. So Paul has urged uh, people who are married to unbelievers, you get saved, your partner's unsaved. He's urged for that person to stay in their marriage, remain as you are. But if the unbelieving spouse wants to abandon the marriage then the believing spouse is not bound to the marriage. Nevertheless, that's not something the believing spouse should actively seek, Paul is saying. Nevertheless, 
Because the Lord in general expects us to remain in the social situation we are, the social situation we find ourselves when we become believers in Christ. That includes our marital status. I say, but as we have already mentioned, what Paul says is not an unbreakable rule. It's a general principle since Paul himself mentions a number of exceptions. So Paul is not purpose is not to lay down a rule that forbids change of social status. He's trying to see the Corinthians to see your social status really doesn't ultimately matter in the big picture of things. And so your desire to change these kinds of things is rather irrelevant to your genuine spiritual growth, to your position in Christ, to your service for the Lord, and so forth. So we see the first application of the principle here in verses 17, I mean 18 and 19. Was a man already circumcised when he was called, that is called to Christianity, called to become a disciple of Christ? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. I see here Paul next illustrates his general principle with another social setting, circumcision. But in this case, the setting also carries religious stone uh, uh, overtones. Remember, Jews circumcise their children, uh, male children. So this one carries religious overtones, which marriage does not carry. So it serves as a perfect illustration of the irrelevancy of such things for people who are trying to attach religious significance to celibacy, to restraining from sexual relations with marriage, to things like marital status and things like that. Because this one carries even religious overtones. And Paul says, this should not be a problem. You shouldn't change that. I say here, social distinctions are basically rendered of no importance by the gospel. They have no bearing on one's spiritual status. In Jesus Christ, Jew and Greek together, whether slave or free, make up one body. Remember 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, For we are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. Whether we're Jews or Gentiles, now that's something totally different. In the Old Testament, Jews had a special status. They were above Gentiles. A Gentile would never have the same blessings he was not, you know, part of the covenant relationship with God. But that's not true in the New Testament. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. Remember Galatians, there's, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. As far as our spiritual relationship to God, as we stand before God, it doesn't make a difference whether one is a Jew or Gentile, whether it's slave or free or male or female. That doesn't affect one's spiritual status before God. Um... So, since this is so, by analogy, he wants the Corinthians to see you shouldn't try to make the changes you're trying to make in your marriage situation. Thus, Paul argues, was anyone already circumcised when he was called? That is, were you a Jew when you were, came to faith in Christ? If so, then he should not become uncircumcised. Was anyone uncircumcised when he was called? That, that is, were you a Gentile when you came to faith? If so then he should not be circumcised. <laughs> I don't want to go into details here. <laughs> but it's possible 
to reverse circumcision. Does, you can have an operation, reverse the effects of circumcision. It was done in the ancient world. That's all I say. If you want to know any more, look it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> Verse 19. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. This is one of the most amazing sentences Paul ever wrote. How could a Jew argue that circumcision is nothing? Jews have always considered it of primary importance since it marks one out as a member of the covenant community. Remember Genesis 17. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo, undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between you and me and you. For the generation to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household, are brought, bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in this, your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It's pretty, pretty straightforward there. <laughs> and Paul says uh, circumcision is nothing. I say here, can you imagine Paul saying that to Moses? You know, hey Moses, circumcision is nothing. Remember, after all, the Lord said to Moses, Moses repeats this, you know, a woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son on the eighth day, the boys to be circumcised, Leviticus 12, 1 through 3. What could be a more clear command of God than circumcision? Yet in the New Testament age, Paul makes it clear that circumcision is no longer to be listed as one of God's commandments to his people. Circumcision was for the nation of Israel, not for the, not for the church in which Jew and Gentile form a new organism, a new body, the church. Remember we looked at... Uh, Galatians 3.28. Why did Paul not allow Titus to be circumcised? When after 14 years I went up to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation. And meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. The matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, this is the book of Galatians. Paul is writing this about six years before he writes 1 Corinthians. He's writing this after his first missionary journey. This is AD 49. After, so he's writing this right before Acts 15. And he's referring back to an incident in Acts 11 when he went down to Jerusalem for what's called the famine relief visit. And he refuses to let Titus be circumcised. Why is that? 
Why won't he let Titus be circumcised? <clears throat> yes. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, okay, but why was Paul against it? Yes, sir. Because um, because the true gospel um, says that 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 physical act of obedience for the nation of Israel was not for the church, and it was not a requirement for being saved. Okay, but. Here's, here's Acts 16. Now this is after Paul has writing, this is after Paul uh, has written Galatians. This is after Paul has written Galatians now. Paul wrote Galatians before, after Acts 14, before Acts 15. Here he is in Acts 16, and he says, the believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Who are we talking about here? <coughs> No. Timothy. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So what's going on here? Well, doesn't Paul say, I've become all things to all people so that I may win a few? So to the Gentiles, (coughs) for the Gentiles, he's not going to ask him to be circumcised because of the Gentiles. If this was a Jew... That's true. That's true. But also, Timothy's mother was Jew. Does it relate to that at all? Yes, that's true, too. And you just mentioned, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 9. Though I'm free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to many, many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. Those under law became like one under law, though I myself am not under law, so as to win those under law. Okay, but why don't you you circumcise Titus? He won't circumcise Titus because, remember in the book of Galatians, they're arguing, you must be circumcised to be saved. They're demanding circumcision as a requirement for salvation. And so Paul says, no, I'm not not letting Titus be circumcised. He can be circumcised, but he wants to, but I'm not going to allow this. We're not going to allow this because that would be giving in to the Judaizers who were saying you must keep the law and be circumcised to be saved. Work salvation. They're arguing work salvation, circumcision and keeping the law. I'm not allowing Titus to be circumcised. But with Timothy, here's Timothy, as you said, whose whose mother is a Jew. And in Jewish, the way Jews work, it's a matriarchal system. If your mother is a Jew, you're a Jew. That's true in Israel today. If your mother, if your mother is a Jew, you can go to Israel and be admitted there as a citizen. If your mother's a Jew, they'll accept you because you're a Jew. Is that right? Yeah, grandmother. Grandmother. Yeah. Grandmother. So, but it's a matriarchal system, isn't it? So, what's going on here is that they see. Timothy is viewed in the culture as a Jewish person. And Paul wants to evangelize Jews. He wants to take Timothy with him. And so Paul wants to, as we see here, win the Jews. So when Paul is with the Jews, he doesn't bring out his ham sandwiches. You know? 
He keeps, <laughs> he keeps his ham sandwiches hidden when he's with the Jews because Jews do not eat ham. They don't eat that stuff. He only eats his ham sandwiches with the Gentiles. It's not because eating ham sandwiches is wrong, but he just doesn't want to offend the Jews. And so to make Timothy more acceptable to Jewish, you know, reaching Jews, evangelism, there's no question. It wasn't because the idea would be Timothy's being circumcised so he can be saved. There was no question about that. It's natural for Timothy to be circumcised. He is a Jew. That's a natural part of the social status of that. So that's fine. He'll allow that. But he won't allow Titus because there's no reason for that. That would be a sign that circumcision is required for salvation. All right. So it's more about representation as opposed to requirement. Yes. It's more about, in this case, for 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 uh, Timothy, it's more about trying to uh, evangelize people and and not offending them, trying to fit into their culture and so forth. Uh, I mean, that's the same way would be true if you're trying, you know, using the food thing. If you if you invite your 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 Muslim your uh, Muslim neighbor over. I suppose Jim has had, you know, contacts with Muslim neighbor. He doesn't serve them ham, right? I mean, you don't, he doesn't, they don't, they don't eat ham. So that would be an offense, wouldn't it? <laughs> he, he's not going to do anything when you're trying to evangelize them. If you invite someone to your house, you're not going to do something to unnecessarily uh, turn them off right away if you're trying to present the gospel to them, uh, even though you don't think that's, uh, it's, a, it's a requirement that, they think it's a requirement for salvation, you don't. We'll see how that works later on. So keeping God's commandments does not include circumcision because Christians are not obligated to keep the law of Moses. Paul says in that same passage, to the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. See there? I am not under the law, Paul says so as to win those on the law. To those not having the law became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So remember, that's how we are as Christians. We're not under the Old Testament Mosaic law. We've been set free from that. We don't have to keep those Old Testament regulations and so ceremonial and so forth, even civil. Now, God's Old Testament law contains moral law, and that moral law is eternal. Thou shalt not kill or murder. Thou shalt not murder. That's eternal. That doesn't change ever, ever. And that comes into the New Testament law. It becomes part of the law of Christ. So Christ's law. So basically, as New Testament Christians, we obey the New Testament for the most part. Now, we look at the Old Testament, and if we find moral truth there, we obey that moral truth. We can preach and teach and learn things out of Ecclesiastes. You know, because there is truth from God there. We can learn things out of Leviticus. There's a lot of things in Leviticus we're not going to do because it's civil, it's ceremonial, and so forth like that. So, Paul says here, uh, keeping God's commands is what counts, and for us, that's basically the law of Christ, New Testament commands for the most part. Paul wants the Corinthians to see that just as circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, so also is their desire to change their marital status. 
Marriage is nothing and celibacy is nothing. These things belong to the category of the irrelevant as far as our spiritual status is concerned. What counts is not sociological conditions, but keeping God's commands. Then we see the second statement of the principle in verse 20. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Paul now reiterates the basic guiding principle with which he began in verse 17. Paul wants them to live out their Christian life in the situation where they were when God called them to be believers in Christ. The emphasis uh, is that you know they can be Christians in whatever situation God calls them when they are saved. The second application of the principle, verses 21 through 23. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Paul now moves to a second supporting illustration. The command is not stay as you are, but rather don't let it trouble you. Although this gets at the same point that has been raised throughout a significantly different way of saying it. The reason seems clear. Paul realizes that in this case, in contrast to both marriage and divorce and circumcision, uncircumcision, the slave could not choose his or her status. That is one That is one could sell oneself into slavery, but slaves could not choose freedom, just automatically just say, I'm leaving. But this becomes, in many ways, a very helpful illustration because that's really what Paul has been thinking about all along. Don't be concerned about this. Don't let it trouble you. Don't let your marital status, you're married to an unbeliever, don't let that trouble you. Don't let that be of concern. Um, your calling to Christ transcends those conditions. In contrast to these to the two conditions in verse 18, an exception is made. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Paul's point is, not that one must always stay where one was when saved, rather it's precisely as the imperative in this verse implies, whatever, whether your situation was, whatever your situation was at the time of your salvation, don't let that be a concern to you. So it's not an absolute thing that you have to remain in your heart. You're a slave and you can gain your freedom. That's fine. But don't let it be an overriding concern. Your main concern is your relationship to Christ and following Christ as a disciple of Christ. Verse 22. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. This sentence gives the theological reason for verse 21a, why the Christian slave should not let his or her social situation be the occasion for concern. The person whose special condition was that of slavery when they responded to God's call to be in the Lord has by that call been given a status with the Lord himself that removes them from being someone else's slave even though the old relationship still continues. So he or she is now, as Paul says, the Lord's freed person. The Lord, the word freed man here is a technical term for releasing slaves, the manumission of slaves. Likewise, the person who was free when called is now Christ's slave. Our calling to salvation has eliminated the option of belonging to ourselves. Now we belong to Christ. By saying that in Christ, the slave is freed and the free person is a slave. 
Paul is again minimizing this social status, social distinctions, as being all that important. Verse 23, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Paul further explains in 22, picking up the language of 620, remember you were bought at a price. He does not want the Corinthians to come under the bondage of mere humans. Paul is not speaking of literally selling themselves into physical slavery, but the warning against their inclination to let their merely human wisdom, which has led them astray about the gospel already, we saw, to dictate their present anxieties about the need to free, be free from certain social settings, especially marriage. The third prince, uh, statement of the principle. 724, brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when Christ called them. Paul concludes by repeating the controlling imperative one more time. When, with these words, the argument with those who would dissolve their marriages in favor of their alleged higher spiritual status of celibacy is brought to an end. The point is that whether we're married, single, or divorced, when we are saved by Jesus, we should not be overly concerned, but serve God where we are. So there aren't any excuses for us, friends, you know. But we like those excuses. We come to Christ and we say, Oh, if I could just change this, you know, then I could serve God. You know, if I could, if, if, if only, I, I'm just, I'm just this. I don't have these talents. I don't have, you know, we, we've always got these excuses. And Paul will allow no excuses here. Verse uh, 25 through 38 advice for virgins those never married. So we saw, first of all, in the first part of the chapter, Paul was giving instructions for those who were married then or were formerly married. Now he's dealing with those who have not been married here in verses 25 through 38. We should probably see Paul's advice in this section as being related to the same view of abstinence held by some at Corinth, which led off the chapter. Remember, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. In that section, the Corinthians were arguing for a change in marital status. Here, that same principle is being used to counsel a man not to marry the virgin he is engaged to. They may have implied that to do, to go through with marriage would constitute sin. Now, remember we looked at those verses last week when Paul will say later on, if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Uh, he says in verse 36, um, if someone is worried he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he's engaged to, and if his passion is not too strong, he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants, he's not sinning. Marriage is not a sin. Now, um, I mean, this is amazing language because this is totally foreign to Paul's, to Paul and his Jewish heritage, as we'll see, you know that a Jew would think of marriage as a sin. Marriage was thought to be as a requirement. Um, he says, uh, under this advice for virgins, those never married, sinlessness is preferable but not required. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Virgins in this passage refers to some young betrothed women 
who along with their fiancés were being pressured by some Corinthians whose slogan was, it is good for a man not to have sex relations with a woman. The engaged couple was now wondering whether to go through with the marriage. Now Paul's point here as we see the discussion develop, Paul's point is basically from the man's viewpoint because in that culture the man would normally take the initiative in instigating a marriage. The man would negotiate with the father and so forth. So we're looking at the man's perspective here. When Paul says, I have no command from the Lord, he simply means that Jesus did not teach on this particular issue. Paul, therefore, will give his judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. So the problem in this case is that Paul cannot lay down a fixed universal rule. I'm going to give my judgment here, my opinion about this situation. What should be done here depends on the individual circumstances, as we'll see. Verse 26. Because of the present crisis, here it is, because of the present crisis, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. The phrase, so this we're talking about the man here who is engaged to be married. And because of the present crisis, Paul says, I think it's that he remain as he is, unmarried. And the phrase, because of the present crisis in this verse, the word troubles in verse 28, and time is short in verse 29. So we're looking at the words here, the present crisis. But later on, Paul will talk about troubles. He will talk about the time is short. These phrases qualify everything Paul says in the following verses, his advice, his opinion about what should be done. That is, Paul's advice is based on some crisis, calamity, or difficult times that have come upon the Corinthian church. The exact nature of the present crisis is unclear. I don't know what it is. One possibility, I say likely possibility, identifies the present crisis as a famine that gripped the city and caused serious economic deprivation, including social unrest caused by a grain shortage or threat of one. There's a scholar named Winter. He's done a lot of work on this. It seems pretty convincing, but it's hard, not, that's not absolute because he can't identify the exact dates. But he talks about uh, grain shortages. Well, you know what happens when, if you live on the East Coast and they, Florida, and the hurricane's coming, the shells are gone, man. The shells are wiped out. There's nothing in the stores. It's all, you know, it's all gone. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, you can't get anything. You can't get any gas. You can't get anything. You know what kind of disruption that brings. Well, that's 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 what happened in the ancient world when there was a grain shortage, or uh, and Corinth couldn't supply all its own grain. It was a large city; it had to import you know, food and so forth. So when there was a sh- shortage of grain or a threat of shortage, uh, winter documents a number of cases where there was real turmoil, a real crisis, a real social upheaval, and so forth. That could be what's going on here. Other Greek writers use the term to describe the plight of cities facing conditions of dire necessity, including famine. Now, some have suggested Paul's talking about some sort of persecution of the church. It might be. We don't have any mention by Paul of particular, you know, some particular, like maybe some other churches we do. It might be. I don't know for sure. Some crisis. Something has disrupted the social fabric. 
Paul's judgment in light of the present crisis is good for a man to remain as he is. Thus, Paul's point would be, in light of the troubles we are already experiencing, who needs the additional burden of marriage as well? But Paul's reasons for putting off the marriage does not carry a moral weight. It is only because of the present crisis. Therefore, Paul will also give his approval in verse 28 to those who don't follow his advice. Verse 27, are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you freed from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. Paul's Here Paul explains what he means in verse 26, for a man to remain as he is. Again, this advice is only for this particular situation in time. It cannot be universalized for all time. Otherwise, it would be the end of Christians getting married. Are you free from... Uh, are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. Now, unless you, you could use this on your son if you don't want him to get married. You could always take him to this verse and say, here's what Paul says right here. But no, this is, a, this is obviously not universal. It would end marriage as we know it. If it, was, if it was an absolute commandment. Verse 28, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you. So Paul himself does not let his own advice in verse 27 stand. His advice, don't look for a wife. Uh, he, he qualifies it immediately here by permitting what is just the opposite of what he said in verse 27. This means that what Paul says in verse 27 is strictly advice for a special situation at this time in Corinth. What is amazing is what that Paul would even say that marriage is not a sin. For Jews, marriage was normal, expected, and practically obligatory. Here's one rabbi, and you can find hundreds of comments like this. Any man who has no wife is no proper man. That's the Jewish idea of things. You should be married by the time, and you should be married in your, in your teens, and you must be married by the time you're 25. This is, you know, this is just, this is the Jewish feeling. Statements like this abound in Jewish literature. Paul apparently's words are a response to the Corinthians' negative view of marriage, that marriage might be sin. Paul recognizes that the question of marriage lies totally outside the category of sin, which is also why there's no command of the Lord on this matter. Paul, however, does believe that because of the present crisis, his initial advice is sound. The couple can marry. But given the situation at this time in Corinth, they will face many troubles in this life. So Paul's argument here is advice only. It reflects his concern, his pastoral concern, we could say. It's not principles. It's not a principle that makes singleness a better option, but it's singleness here as a pastoral concern. Gordon Fee has uh, some very helpful thoughts on this. I um, thought I would read them here on this section. He says, Passages such as this one should serve as a regular reminder of the considerable distance and therefore differences that exist between contemporary Western cultures and the one in which Paul and the Corinthian believers lived. Indeed, one of the unfortunate things that has sometimes happened to this text in the latter church is that the very pastoral concern 
of Paul that caused him to express himself in this way has sometimes become a source of anxiety rather than comfort. Part of the reason for this is that in Western cultures, we do not generally live in a time of present distress or crisis. Thus, we fail to sense the kind of caring concern that this text represents. Beyond that, what is often heard is that Paul prefers singleness to marriage, which he does. But quite in contrast to Paul's own position over against the Corinthians, we often read into that preference that singleness is somehow a superior status. That causes some who do not wish to remain single to become anxious about God's will in their lives. Such people need to hear it again. Marriage or singleness per se lies totally outside the category of commandments to be obeyed or sin if one does not otherwise. One does otherwise. And Paul's preference here is not predicated on spiritual grounds, but on pastoral concern. It is not only perfectly all right to marry, but for those of us who are happily married, it goes beyond all right to good. Unfortunately, our reading of the text from such a perspective cuts in two ways. Our present culture, especially Christian subculture, tends to think of marriage as the norm in such a way that singles are sometimes second-class citizens. For such people, this text is merely Paul's opinion and is seldom listened to at all. That, too, misses Paul's point. Some are called to singleness still. Such believers need to be able to live in the local Christian community with full acceptance and beyond suspicion. All right. Paul's reasons for singleness, 729 through 35. When Paul says, what I mean, brothers and sisters, we are to understand that he now intends to explain what has just been said in the previous section in verses 25 through 28. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if they were not theirs to keep. Not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. The basic premise of these verses seems to be that from now on believers might have a totally new perspective as to their relationship with the world. This perspective is given in the form of five illustrations introduced by the words as if. If taken literally, the five as-if-not clauses become absurd if taken literally. As, for example, the first, those who have wives should live as if they had none. In fact, this one is clearly contradictory to what Paul has said earlier about marriage in verses 2 through 6. If you have a wife, you must live with her in a full mutual relationship. I mean, you can't neglect the responsibilities of marriage. So it's not to be taken literally. 
They're, but they are not to be taken literally. What Paul is calling for is a radical new attitude about the world. Paul expects the Corinthians to continue doing all five of these things. Live, mourn, be happy, buy, use things. But he's calling on the Corinthians to live detached from the world. That is, as totally free from its control. Therefore, the, Christ, the Christian lives in the world just as the unsaved, married, sorrowing, rejoicing, buying, making use of the world. But none of these determine one's life. They are not the controlling factors. The Christian is marked by eternity, and therefore he or she is not under the dominating, domineering power of those things that dictate the existence of others. The Corinthians think that the unmarried should stay as they are, but for the wrong reason. Because they're pushing the view it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Ball is urging on them a totally different worldview. Because of the present distress and the shortened time, the betrothed may wish to remain single. But remaining single or married itself is not the crucial question. Either is all right. Paul has said, and we'll say again, what is important is that in either situation, one must live as if not, that is, without one's relationship to the world as the determining factor. The reason for this new attitude toward the world is because the world in its present form is passing away. In Christ's death and resurrection, God has already determined the course of things. He has already brought the world in its present form under judgment. We know that the, what the future holds. And the world, we know what the future holds for the world, for us and the world, and that should cause us to live differently than the unsaved world. So we go through life, we're doing everything that the world does. We look very similar to the world. We're marrying, we're sorrowing, we're rejoicing, he says, we're buying, we're making use of things. But these are not the most important things to us in life. They shouldn't be. We need to live, as it were, you know, with an eternal perspective, don't we? Um, Paul says this in other ways. You remember Colossians 3.2. Set your <clears throat> minds on things above. Set your affections on, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. So Paul is trying to relieve their concern here about these issues because these are not the most important thing to you as an individual. 732a, I would like you to be free from concern. With these words, now I would like you to be free from concern. Paul means free from concern as long as you're in the present world. Because of our new life in Christ, we ought to be able to live our lives differently from the unsaved, who are naturally anxious about almost everything, because for them, everything is primarily about the here and now. As believers, our lives look similar to the unsaved because we still buy and marry. But we ought to do so as if not. That is, as if they are not what determines our existence. What is ultimately determinant for us, and most important, is our new life in Christ. Our vision of the future. Not whether we're married or single. So we should be free from concern about that, whether married or single. If we keep our eyes on this eternal perspective. 732b, an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. 
An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. Paul now describes two legitimate life situations a person finds oneself in, either married or unmarried, and how those situations affect their uh, their concerns. The married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife in the sense of verses 30 and 31. This is not to be taken negatively, but as a simple statement of reality. The real difference between the two men is that the married man's interests are divided. This does not mean that he's full of anxieties, but that he cares for both the Lord and his wife, and it is proper that he cares for both. But the obvious truth is that the married man could have less opportunity for service than is available to the unmarried. But it does not mean that one man is spiritually superior to the other. Remember, they're, they're elevating this to a spiritual a superiority, which is exactly what the Catholic Church has done. Celibacy, that's a higher spiritual status. As throughout this chapter, Paul repeats for the woman what he's just said about the men. Verse 35, I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. This verse brings to an end the argument of 29 through 35 by stating the purpose of what Paul is saying. It seems clear that Paul's preference in the present situation is for singleness, but he's careful to say his advice is not meant to restrict them. Then, Verses 36 through 38, but marriage is no sin. Paul now returns to the specific problems first raised in verse 25 and brings it to a conclusion with specific instructions. Verse 36, if anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning, they should get married. Paul's first bit of instruction is for the man who wants to go through with his marriage. He should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. This probably reflects a real situation of someone in the Corinthian church. Unfortunately, some in Corinthian church have led this man to believe that it may even be sin if he were to go through with the marriage, which in turn has led to his anxiety. Paul says, no, he's not sinning. Verse 37, but a man who has settled the matter in his own mind who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. Paul now takes up, Paul now takes up the opposite situation from the man in verse 36, who wanted to get married. This situation now described by Paul deals with a man who might choose both the Corinthian and Paul's own point of view that it's better to remain as he is. But if the man chooses this course of action, Paul wants to make sure that he's doing so for the right reasons, not because he's yielding to the false Corinthian notion that it's morally good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul goes out of his way to ensure that such a man must be fully convinced in his own mind. First, he says he has settled the matter in his own mind. Second, he is under no compulsion. Third, he has control over his own will, meaning no one else is forcing this action upon him. And fourth, he's made up his mind. These qualifications strongly suggest that outside influences might lead him to take such an action, but against his own will. 
That seems precisely to be the case in the Corinth. There were those who were urging such an action on the grounds that it's morally good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman and thus, thus for the betrothed man to remain as he is. Now Paul agrees with the last part that he would do well to remain as he is, but it's not on moral grounds. So Paul's word to the man who takes his own position is that he's got to be sure he's doing this because he wants to do it. He feels it's the best action, not because he's under compulsion. Hopefully such a person is making up his own mind. And hopefully he has the gift of self-control, verse 7, remember, that Paul had, which is the gift of freedom from the desire or the need to have sexual fulfillment. That gift made it possible for Paul to live without marriage. Verse 38. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. This verse is the conclusion to verses 36 and 37, as well as the conclusion to the whole argument. The first sentence, he who marries the virgin does right, summarizes verses 28 and 36. He is not sinned if he marries, indeed he does right. The second sentence summarizes what Paul has argued all along. Paul's view is that given the present crisis, he who does not marry does marry her does better. But this is not because one's choice is inherently morally better than the other. This is precisely what Paul has argued against throughout the chapter. Primarily what makes verse 38 the better choice is found back in verse 26 because of the present crisis. Finally, the general principle in verses 39 through 40. A man is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is free to marry anyone, but he must belong to the Lord. The final word to the woman comes as something of a surprise. It assumes that the woman is married, which is not the subject under discussion in verses 25 through 38. We've been talking about unmarried people engaged to be married. Instead, these final words probably take us back to verses 1 through 24 where the Corinthians were trying to dissolve their marriages. This passage appears, therefore, to function as a concluding word for both sections, married and virgins, by repeating in a different way the principle teaching of verses 1 through 24, that those married should not separate from their husbands and by urging the same on virgins who go through with their marriages. That is, if the virgin goes through with her marriage, then she, then the general rule is she is married for life. The first statement, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, reflects the general teaching of the Bible. The marriage bond is in effect until her husband dies. After that, she has the same option as the man who wants to get married. She is free to marry anyone she wishes. But if she chooses to remarry, it should be only be the Lord. We should not understand this verse as a prohibition against all divorce and remarriage. That is to ignore the context, which is what the Corinthians were seeking, which is that the Corinthians were seeking to dissolve their marriage without biblical grounds. Paul is assuming for the sake of the point that there are no legitimate grounds for divorce in the situation presented to him by the Corinthian letter. They weren't arguing for a divorce on biblical grounds, but on unbiblical grounds. Verse 40, In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think I too have the Spirit of God. 
Paul repeats his previous belief that remaining single is better option for the woman given the current situation in Corinth, the present crisis. But he adds that it is his personal judgment or opinion the woman will be happier if she remains single. However, Paul does not tell us why he thinks this is the case. Why will she be happier? We can assume the reasons are the same that he's already stated in the chapter because of the distress, because of the problems, so forth. In a way that is similar to the language of verse 25, remember he said there, I have no command from the Lord, but I give judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Paul adds that his opinion is not without some basis. He notes, I think that I too have the Spirit of God. It's a difficult phrase to understand what Paul is saying when he says, I think that I too have the Spirit of God. There's been a couple of ways people think about this. One, it's possible that Paul is taking one more jab at the Corinthians' view that they were especially spiritual. Remember this over-realized eschatology, they've arrived. Thus, Paul would mean, if you think you have the Spirit of God, remember, I've got it too. You know, he's sort of ridiculing. In other words, Paul may be resorting to a bit of sarcasm that we've already seen him use in the letter. That's how I've usually taken it, that Paul is being a little sarcastic. You know, I think I think I've no, I think I can speak on this subject too. Some take it as uh, may simply be strengthening of his opinion, as in verse twenty-five. That is, he is not simply on his own in this matter, but he also has the help of the Spirit in making these judgments. So that might be true also. All right, we've gone over. Thank you very much. We will see you, Lord willing, next week.